Yeah, I remember about 25 years ago, I would go to business seminars and whoever the guru was teaching always was saying in those days, you need to make sure you have a purpose statement or a mission statement. That was kind of a new term back then. But we were all challenged if we were leaders of businesses or leaders of organizations to come up with a statement that was short, succinct, but full of meaning that communicated what we were all about. And then about 10 years later, I remember going to seminars and I would hear the, the guru say, you need to develop a personal mission statement or a personal purpose statement, a statement for your life. And then I would go to conferences on family and they would say, you need to come up with a family purpose statement. And after all these conferences, it was kind of like needing an app to have all your passwords for all the, you know, the junk that you have on your cell phone. And I really began to wonder, do we really pay attention to purpose statements? Do we, really, do we really listen to them all that much? In fact, I was reading an article this week on four of the worst purpose statements out there, but they were purpose statements of four of the most successful businesses in America. And what that tells me is it's more important to have a purpose and know your purpose than to put it in a statement. But for a few moments today, I do want to talk to you about a personal purpose statement. And I'll tell you why it's important for us. We're in the fifth and final message of a series called 2020. And this series began with a single message that I brought back in May. And I shared with you that all of us have a choice to live our lives either looking for the reasons why bad things happen. And I said, if we do, we're gonna ask, why does this bad thing happen? But we're in a broken world, we're flawed people, and we, we live in a world with all kinds of problems and issues. So I said, even if you found the reasons why bad things happen, you wouldn't like them and they wouldn't take you anywhere. Or I said in that message, you can realize that if you follow God, God has a way of manually overriding our circumstances and injecting purpose. So we can either live our lives asking why do bad things happen, or we can live our lives looking to God and saying, God, what do you want to do here? What's next? Well, the reason why I want to talk to you about purpose statement today, your personal purpose statement is this. I am convinced that all of us have an overarching purpose in our lives, and all the little purposes support that purpose. Now, here's where it's salient to those of us who follow God. We talked about this last week. We live in an existential world where most people have the idea that it's up to us to determine what our purpose is. Well, many times, Christians allow that to get into their groundwater, and we can begin to believe that we determine our purpose, and it's up to God to support our purpose. In other words, we've determined what life is all about, and it's up to God to take individual situations and to work those situations out in such a fashion that it supports our larger purpose. So for that reason today, I think it's very important for us to ask ourselves the question, what is the purpose of our life? What is that big overarching purpose that all the little purposes support? And if you do nothing else today but examine your life and determine what your purpose is, you'll be way ahead of most Americans who are around you because, see, that's really strange. Our verse today ultimately is going to talk about life and death, and that's two of the things most Americans don't think about. They're numb to thinking about life and in denial about thinking about death. So if you do nothing else but determine what is your purpose, it's going to be worthwhile for you to be here today. Okay, here's the thing. Whether or not you formed it or whether or not it's tacit, even if you haven't even thought about it, our purpose statement goes like this. For to me... To live is something. For to me, life is X, or life is blank. Something's going to go in that blank. And ultimately, it is your main purpose, and all the other purposes support that purpose. Now, all kinds of stuff gets crammed into that blank. I never, I, I never cease to be amazed at the strange stuff that people can put in that blank. 
I remember when I first came here many years ago, I was just making a visit on a lady, an elderly lady who asked me to visit her. And when I came into the house, suddenly I was besieged by a herd of dogs. I mean, they were like jumping up on this leg and jumping. I mean, I don't know how many dogs were in this house. I mean, it was like a kennel. And I mean, they're not only were they were in my lap, there were dogs up on top of the couch. But have you ever been in somebody's house that has a lot of pets like that and they're accustomed to everything and you're like freaking out because this is weird and they're looking like everything's perfectly normal? <laughs> well, that's, that's what was going on with me. You know, I'm like, I got dogs everywhere and I keep waiting for her to like pull the dogs off. But after a few moments, she said, you know, Reverend, Pastor, she said, my life is these dogs. I thought, yeah. <laughs> you think? I remember when, when I was really, really in my early 20s, I was bivocational. Not only was pastor at a church, but I also taught at a very, very large private school in, in, in Fort Worth. And I remember talking to a group of sophomores one day. I was teaching sophomore English, and, and I was asking them, what do you want to do in life? And, and I was challenging them to tell me where they wanted to go to college and what their careers will be, what they would consider success. And I remember this one kid said, you know what? I just want to do one thing in life. I want to get a Mazda RX-7. If you're under 40, you have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> like the only, the, only word that made, the only word that made sense in that sentence is Mazda, Maybe. RX-7 was kind of like a little cheap sports car, you know, and they quit making it in 2002. But anyway, that, and I said, you know, wait, 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 wait. Your, your, your goal in life is to get a Mazda RX-7? Yeah. I said, well, but where do you want to go to college? Not going to college. We can get a job, man, deliver pizzas or something like that. Why do you want to do that? I want to get a Mazda RX-7. Well, don't, don't you want to do anything more than that? No, I want to get a Mazda RX-7. Well, that's been a long time ago. It's been a long time since I was 24. But I will tell you this, that car's in a junkyard somewhere if he got it. But he would say, and he was saying to me, for me to live is a Mazda RX-7. What's in, you know, you hear the commercial, what's in, your, what's in your wallet? What's in your blank? To you to live is what? I mean, there are people that, to, to them to live is to party. I mean, I was speaking in Ohio this year, and in Ohio, and especially in the rural areas, drugs, not only illegal drugs, but prescription narcotics are becoming pandemic, and, and, and all the leaders are like pulling their hair trying to figure out what to do because these are, these are good young people, these are smart young people, but they're living their lives, working their jobs in order to get the drugs because to them to live is drugs, to them to live is alcohol, for some people to live is sex, for some people to live is money. You know, in, in our culture today, especially in the age of social media, for a lot of people, for me to live is to impress people. Someone has said Americans are the only people in the world who will buy stuff they don't need with money they don't have to impress people they don't like. <laughs> yeah, that's true. For to me to live is to impress people. For to me to live is to be angry. Hey, you know what it's like when you're driving and you know, that person just pulls up behind you and like, just like gets right on your bumper because you're not getting out of their way fast enough and they're honk. I mean, just, you can just like, the light can turn green and if there's like a millisecond and you don't take off, they lay on the horn. You know what? You're dealing with somebody that to them to live is to be angry. For to me to live is something. But here's the question. Whenever you find whatever it is that to you to live is that, the question that you and I need to ask is when we get to the end of our life, will our life have been worth living? Because the only way that you and I can ascertain whether or not our lives are going to be worth living is for us to figure out what our purpose is and to back off and to analyze it and ask the question, if this is my purpose and if I live this way, will my life be worth living? 
Well, for a few moments, I'd like for you to examine one person's purpose statement. You know, I've always believed that every one of us lives either to be a consumer or to make impact. And in our American culture today, it's very popular to be a consumer. But I, I want to share with you the purpose statement of the person I believe made the greatest impact in our world other than Jesus Christ. Because he leaves for us a very short, succinct, but powerful purpose statement. His name is Paul. And he took the gospel to the known world. If you're holding a Bible in your lap, God used him to write at least 13 of the New Testament books. So he's an extraordinary character. And here is when he was giving us his purpose statements in Philippians chapter 1. In the 21st verse, he simply says, for to me, to live is Christ. That's his purpose statement. For to me, to live is Christ. Now, you know what? It would be easy to think, wow, boy, that's a very spiritual sounding person. He must have like grown up in church. I mean, he must have like started out in Baby Bay and gone to Adventure Avenue, 252. And, you know, you know, he must have been part of the great middle school ministry here and high school ministry and gone on to prime. No, no, no. See, what I think is important for us to understand is Paul hadn't always thought to him to live was Christ. In fact, just the opposite. When I tell you that Paul had a world-class education, I'm not just, it's not hyperbole. He did. Paul was one of the most brilliant thinkers in our world. You know, in those days, he, was, he, he had like had a strong sampling of the great three cultures of the world. He was a Roman citizen. He knew Roman politics. But he was very familiar with the Hellenistic Greek culture that was so celebrated by the intellectuals. And he was a Jewish person, so consequently, he knew the Hebrew world. So he was well-versed and well-educated in all the primary schools of thinking in the world. So he might have started off his life saying, for to me to live is education, because he had a world-class education. But here's the thing about Paul. You see, he not only was very brilliant, he became very successful. You know, in the Jewish world, it was thought you really weren't ready to be a leader until you were 50, but for Paul, he was so smart, he became a leader as a very young man. He was a lawyer, and consequently, when he was in his early 20s, I mean, he was like getting big jobs because he was so smart. So he might have said, for to me to live a success, but you have to understand in the Jewish world, it was like everything sort of morphed into one pile. It wasn't just law, but law and religion came together in the Jewish world. So consequently, he was ultra-religious. He was extremely religious. He knew the Bible better than any of us could ever know the Bible, even before he came to Christ. So he might have said, for to me to live is religion. One of the most important things I'm going to say today and I am challenging you, as you can imagine. I'm challenging myself for us to get to the place where we could say, for to me to live is Christ. But if in your purpose statement to you to live is some variation of me, you're going to go to a dark place. And you know what? This, I never thought about this until I was getting ready for today's talk. If to me to live is me, it's just a matter of time until I hurt people. Could I say that one more time? If my purpose statement is for to me to live is me, it's just a matter of time before I hurt people. Because see, if, me, if life is all about getting what I want, I am going to hurt people in the process of getting what I want. There's something about living for self that takes us to a very dark place. And even though Paul started with all this brilliance and all this education and all this power and influence, he went to a very dark place because by the time we meet him in Acts chapter 9, 
He is on his way to Damascus, Syria with a briefcase full of, of open arrest warrants to arrest any Christian that he finds, male or female, man or woman. He would go into a house where Christians were. He would take the man and his wife, put them in handcuffs, leave the children crying in the house. Who cares what happens to them? He would drag them back to Jerusalem to go to trial. In fact, Paul would say this. Let me read this to you. Paul talks about his life in those days. He called himself the chief of sinners. In other words, he said, if you bagged up all the sinners, I was the worst one. He said, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them many a time. I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities. I mean, here is a guy that is just rounding up Christians. So I just want to get this in, want us to get this in our head. You know, like you're, like you're watching it on YouTube. Here's Paul, young lawyer. He's surrounded with his posse, another an entourage of young lawyers. They're riding on their horses or donkeys or whatever they're on. They're on their way to Damascus. He's got an open, he's got a briefcase full of open arrest warrants. Going to bust any Christian he can find, bring them back. You know, if you could put a mic in Paul's face on that trip and say, "Sir, could could I interview you for just a second? Would you would you tell me, would you tell me what you live for? What are you about?" And you can see his eyes flash fire as Paul says, "I live for one thing." I want to stamp the name of Jesus Christ off the face of the earth, and I want to kill every one of his followers. Well, sir, that's really kind of a dark thing. Could you tell me why you hate this person, Jesus, and his followers so much? Yeah, Paul said, I can tell you why. Because his followers follow a dead man. That's stupid. They follow a dead man, and I want to kill everyone I can find. Wow. Wow. But if you know Acts chapter 9, and if you don't, you can read this later when you go home. Something cool, you know, I, I always think about this. If I had been in the Christian community in the early days, I'm sure there were many who prayed as I would have prayed, Lord, strike him dead. That Paul guy, man, he's, he's the worst. He's, he's, an, he's a terrorist. Strike him dead, Lord, please. But God had other ideas. Instead of striking him dead, he wanted to strike him alive. So here's Paul. He's on his horse or donkey or whatever. He's on his way to Damascus. And next thing you know, Bam, there's this bright light that shines out from heaven and the power, the force of it is so great, it knocks him off his horse and he's lying there on the ground. And there Paul asks two questions that all of us are going to have to ask at some point. I love the first question. He said, who are you, Lord? I mean, he doesn't know who he is. Somebody just knocked him down, but he knows one thing, whoever he is, he's boss. And Paul is saying, who are you, boss? The answer is classic. Jesus didn't use any of the terms that Paul would have been familiar with for the Messiah. He could have said, I am the Christ, I am the Christos, I am the anointed one. But Jesus didn't use any of these terms. He said, I am Jesus. Why did he say that? Because Jesus is his human name. I mean, Paul thought these people were worshiping a dead man. And Jesus said, hey, I'm here. You thought I was dead, but I'm not dead. And the people you're going to get, they're not following a dead man. I am Jesus. And you know, he said something really interesting to Paul. From, the, from, from time to time, people have said to me, it's hard to be a Christian. You know what Jesus said to Paul? He said, it's been hard for you. That's strange, isn't it? Paul's been hurting all these Christians, and Jesus is saying, it's been hard for you. Hey, if you're not following Jesus, the one thing I have in my hip pocket when I talk to you, I know life is hard for you. And Jesus said to Paul, you know, it's strange because he didn't say, you've been making it hard on me. He said, Paul, it's hard for you. It's hard for you to live this life. And then Paul asked the second question. What do you want me to do? What's my purpose? Wow. And he went from being this awful, awful guy to being perhaps the greatest influence in Christianity other than Jesus. 
How did that happen? I mean, what was it that changed Paul? You know, I grew up in church, and some of you grew up in church too. And in fact, there's even a term for the kind of experience Paul had. We call it a Damascus Road experience. And many of us grew up in church, and, and I've actually had people say, well, I, knew, I didn't have a Damascus Road experience. Almost kind of longingly, we almost wish we'd had this huge encounter with God that we could hark back to and say, that's when my life all changed. But you know what I did? I thought about Paul's experience, and the more I thought about it, a lot of you have had Damascus Road experiences. There are two components to his experience. Look at this. The first thing that happened is he got knocked down. You know, I've heard the stories of thousands of new springers, and you know what I hear a lot of times? I was like sailing through life with my purpose, but all of a sudden life came along and knocked me down, and then all of a sudden I'm like listening to God. And then the second component of Paul's experience was the truth became so powerful he couldn't ignore it anymore. Hey, you know what? I've had that experience, haven't you? I mean, life just knocked us down, and for the first time, we're really ready to listen to God. And then something changed, and what we had ruled out as unimportant suddenly becomes so real, we can't ignore it anymore. Wow, something had to change. (laughs) There are so many stories at New Spring through the years that stand out to me, but I think about one this morning. I was speaking one summer day years ago, and as I walked, finished the talk, I was walking over here in the second line of seats, there was a man, and he looked just like Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead. If you're under 40, you have no idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) Your music experience is limited. But I mean, he looked just like Jerry Garcia. And I kept noticing during the sermon. And when I, when I got through with the message, the friend who had invited him and his wife said, hey, Mark, would you come meet my friend? So I walked down the stage and I met this guy. And it turned out he was 50 years old. It was the first time he'd ever been in church in his life for a funeral or anything. And so, you know, and he also let me know very quickly he was agnostic. And I thanked him for coming. And he said this to me. And never forget this. this is like, I'm standing right here. He was like, I don't know about this Jesus dude, but I like listening to you talk. That was our first talk, conversation. And I just thanked him. I said, would you please keep coming? And he did keep coming. That was in summer. In October, he gave his life to Jesus Christ. That was back when we used to rent out the convention center and have baptism services back then. So we were at the Hartman. I rarely ever baptize anybody anymore, but I baptized him and his wife because by this time he'd become a very good friend. But some months later, perhaps a year or so later, uh, he and I were going to lunch together and we were eating at a restaurant over on the west side of town. And he started to box up his meal and he said, Mark, I just, I don't know what's wrong with me. I have a hard time eating anymore. He said, I can't eat a whole lot at one time. And he said, I'm just going to have to box this up and take it home. He said, you know, I've lost 25 pounds. Well, I just said, well, I, I hope it's nothing. And and that was that, but about, oh, I don't know, four or five weeks later, three weeks later, something like that, his wife called me and said, he's just been diagnosed with stage three esophageal cancer. And over the next year, he died slowly. I went to see him the day before he died. And all he could talk about was how excited he was to see Jesus and how he couldn't wait to get to heaven and all the things he wanted to do when he got to heaven. And I got in my car, and as God is my witness, I said, it's not fair. When he was in church the first time he met me, he said, I don't know about this Jesus dude, but I like listening to you talk. And I thought, now his faith is greater than mine. I preached the sermon, and he got more out of it. 
Hey, listen, guys, nothing in the world can change you like what the Bible calls the new birth. Religion won't do it. Even being a member at New Spring won't do it. Baptism won't do it. Rituals won't do it. Trying to be a good person won't do it. You know, when I talk to people a lot of times, you know, I've told you this before, but when I usually I, I'm flying a lot and I, and I sit beside strangers and, you know, you just sort of like get into conversation. And one of the first things, especially if I'm sitting by a guy, he's going to ask me, what do you do? And I try never, I try to put off answering that question as long as I'm possible because when you tell people you're a minister, it just kind of freaks out the conversation. Oh, I drove by a church one day. I mean, it's sort of like, <laughs> just trust me. So they'll say, what do you do? And I'll say, guess. I don't know how you should feel about this if you're a New Springer. They've never guessed minister. I used to poll it. Lawyer was number one. Advertising was number two. But you know what happens when I begin to talk to them about if they're going to heaven? Almost every person will say, well, I think I'm a pretty good person. You know what? Here's the thing. If you have any variation of that in your heart and mind, let me tell you the, the awful truth. Jesus can do nothing for you. If you feel like you're going to heaven because you're a good person, Jesus can't do a single thing for you. When he gave his purpose statement, he said, I'm come to seek and to save that which is lost. So if you're not lost, he can't do anything for you. But I think honest people would have to say, well, Mark, you know what? I'm not really sure that God and I would connect because I'm so different from God. And to be honest, my problem is God is like always right. And I'm like, well, here, forgive me for breaking a sentence. You know, people are always so kind to me at New Spring, and they sort of treat me like I'm some sort of great Christian. Truth be told, I'm just doing what my assignment is. If you could know me the way Mary Alice knows me, if you could know me the way my kids know me, if you could know me the way that the people that work with me closely, you know what they would tell you? They wouldn't tell you this, but if they were telling the honest truth, you know what they would say about Mark? You know what? Mark's serious, and he works really hard, and he's really sincere and everything, but you know, Mark's not right. And that's true. It's strange, isn't it? We use that moniker for people in the, in the intellectual realm. But the problem with Mark is it's not just that he's not right in his thinking. Mark's not right in his living. Mark's not right in his ethics all the time. The problem with Mark, Mark's just not right. Now, you know, the question is, because here's the thing. I think a lot of people have the idea that, like, Jesus looks down on the earth and, like, I'm looking for the really, really, really good people. And if you're really, really good, then, okay, I pick you on my team. Do you know that that is a million miles away from what the Bible says? Let me share two verses with you. Because if you're here today and you say, well, Mark, my problem is I'm just not right. I mean, God is right, but I'm not. In the book of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, the Bible says, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all. In other words, he only had to do it one time. The righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. So if you're here today and you say, Mark, my problem is I'm not right. Good news, you qualify. That's true. I mean, Jesus didn't come for the people who are right. There ain't none. He came for the people who are not right. And the Bible says Jesus died. God put his son on the cross, the one who was right for the ones of us who are not right, that he might bring us to God. Oh, but I hear somebody say, Mark, you don't understand. I mean, thank you for that. That's a nice attempt. But my problem isn't just that I'm not right. My problem is I'm like bad. I mean, you know, God always tells the truth, but I tell lies. You know, God is pure, but I'm not pure. You know, God is, God is good, but I'm not good. In fact, if it was a word, I would have to say my problem is I am ungodly. Let me share with you my favorite verse in the Bible. 
Hey, listen, this is Romans chapter four, verse five. I started to say you should get it tattooed on you, but some of your kids are in here and you'd have interesting conversations on the way home because <laughs> your kids will say, Mark said this morning. So I'm just saying, just write it on your skin with permanent ink, okay? <laughs> Romans four, five, the most amazing verse in the Bible. The Bible says, but to the one, that's any of us, but to the one who believes on him, who declares righteous the ungodly, his or her faith is counted for righteousness. Did you see that? The Bible says he declares righteous the ungodly. Are you kidding me? I mean, you think about that. It doesn't say he makes the ungodly godly. I believe that he does that over time, but it says he declares righteous the ungodly. So if you're here today and along with me, you would say, my problem is I'm ungodly. Good news, you qualify. If you're ungodly, God can help you. If you're not right, God can help you. If you're very good, there's not a thing in the world God can do for you, and you're on your own. You, do you see now? That is why the change such as happened with my friend here. That is why the change is so big. This is how Paul could go for to me to live is to hurt Jesus, to go to the place where he could say, for to me to live is Christ. Hmm. In fact, here's what Paul would say. He said, I've been crucified with Christ. It didn't mean he, he literally was crucified. He just meant the old me is dead. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It's one of my favorite lines in the Bible. And the life that I now live. How many of you can say that? I mean, you don't need to raise your hand or anything, but how many of you can talk about the life you now live? I'm not what I ought to be, but thank God I'm not what I used to be. This is the life I used to live, but the life I now live. Paul said, the life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For to me, to live is Christ. Now, I know what I'd be thinking if I was sitting out there hearing that. Because I tend to be a real concrete thinker. And if I were sitting where you're sitting today, I would say, well, wait a minute, Mark. I mean, that sounds all cool and religious and stuff to me to love as Christ. But would you like unpack that and tell me what it means in practical terms? Well, if to you to live would be Jesus, well, then you have to look at life this way. Everything about me is an extension of Jesus. My hands they're Jesus' hands. That means I don't flip people off on K96 with my hand. Because <laughs> Jesus wouldn't do that with his hand. Or even in the New Spring parking lot. <laughs> we have cameras. <laughs> Here's a big one. My mouth belongs to Jesus. Would Jesus cut people down? Would Jesus criticize? Would Jesus rant? No, I don't think so. I think he would encourage people, build people up. I think he would express love with his mouth. My eyes belong to Jesus. What would Jesus look at? Here's a big one. My mind belongs to Jesus. What would Jesus think? See, I begin to look at life, my life, as an extension of Jesus on the earth because to me, to live is Christ. Because he lives. He's not some sort of dead religious figure. He is the living son of God who has changed me and come into my life. Even though I wasn't right, he made me right. Even though I was ungodly, he made me godly, declared me godly by his sacrifice on the cross. And so, you know what? Since he died for me, I think I should live for him. For to me, to live is Christ. I was born at night, just not last night. 
I, I understand the self-focused culture that you and I live in in 2017. And I, and I know, I, I know. There are going to be even people here today who would call, and you are a Christian, but you would say, Mark, I am sorry. I've got only X number of years down here. I cannot see myself living for another person. I mean, yeah, it's really good. I'd like to get hell insurance if I can. I'll come to New Spring and sing some songs and listen to Christian radio. But man, for, for, sorry, for to me to live is me. Well, I kind of tricked you. You see, when I gave you Paul's purpose statement, I only gave you half of it. Let's go back and pick up the whole statement. Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Strange, isn't it? When people die, we say they lost their lives. But Paul was saying, you know what? Living down here is Christ, but man, when the time comes for me to die, that's when I'm going to start living. For to me to live is Christ and to die is profit. In fact, if you look at the very next verse, verse 22, he said, he's talking to these people in Philippi that he was ministering to. He said, what would I choose if it were up to me? Deliver to die? I don't know. It'd be a hard choice. Sometimes I want to leave this life. Notice he didn't say end. He said, sometimes I want to leave this life and be with Christ. That would be, I wish you could read this in Greek. Because it's like he employed every superlative he could find. I'll try to translate this in English. That would be way more, far, very better. And that's strange. We, we do everything we can to keep from dying, and we should because God put us here for a reason. But Paul is saying, you know, it would be way, 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 way better if I could go to be with God. Let me say the most serious thing I'm going to say today. You could be here today and you say, I'm just never going to get to that place for to me to live as Christ. Well, let me just tell you something. This works like a linear algebraic equation. You know, when basic algebra, you know, when you change one side of the equation, you have to change the other side. So let's do that. Let's just say, okay, we're going to put an X over Christ. For to me, to live is take Jesus out. Well, you're going to have to go over to the other side of the equation and take something out. If you take out Christ, you have to take out gain. And all you're left with is for to me, to live is to die. Years ago, when there was still a two in front of my age, It was my very earliest days here. I was 28, 29. I remember we had a middle-aged lady. All middle-aged people look old to me when I was 28. Um, a middle-aged lady in our church, and her sister and husband had no interest in God. They had no interest in church. They were too busy. They didn't have any time for Christ. And so she was always asking me to pray for them. So they were in my prayer list, and so consequently, I felt like I knew them even though I'd never met them because their names were in my prayer list. And to this day, I can still remember their names. Well, sadly, the, the woman, the sister, and who wouldn't have time for God, contracted terminal cancer. And in time, I got a phone call from this couple, and they asked if I would come to their house and visit with them. Now, I was sorry for the diagnosis, but I was hopeful that they had begun to explore Christ. But New Spring, when I got there, they were, man, their motors were running. They were angry. They were furious. I noticed that when I drove up, they had this massive RV out in the driveway. It was a very modest house, modest furnishings. But anyway, when I got in the house and sat down, they were just like, man, they like unloaded on me. And they never met me before. I mean, they, couldn't, they, they didn't know me well enough to be angry at me. 
of where they were. And, and this is what they were saying. They were saying, you say there's a God, but it, our whole life has been about one thing. We worked hard. We worked long hours. We worked overtime. We saved everything we could save. And our dream in life was to buy this really, really nice motorhome where we could travel and see the country. You tell us there's a God. Why would he take our dream away like this? The man pointed to his wife and said, here she is. She's dying with cancer. And we're never going to... And he was angry, and they didn't teach me that kind of thing in seminary. I came up with some kind of answer. But they were as angry when I left as when I came in. I think it was about three weeks later, I got a phone call from the chaplain at St. Joseph. And here's what he said. He said, I'm up here, and you have to understand, he's with the family, so he's, he's speaking in code speak to me. I'm up here with the family. And he said, I'm here with Mrs. X. And I know what that means. That means they haven't told the family yet that the person has, has died. They're waiting for me to get there. And I said, didn't you mean, in, in that, and I'm, and it's got I said, don't you have it backwards? Don't you mean that you're up there with Mr. X? And he said, no, Reverend. I hate it when people call me that. No, Reverend, I'm up here with Mrs. X. Yeah, her husband had been in robust, perfect health for a 59-year-old. He'd just been down in the basement on his treadmill and dropped dead of a heart attack. And yeah, the chaplain had it right. He was sitting there with the wife. Three weeks later, I think, or four weeks later, she passed, and I have both their funerals back to back. Here's, here's a couple that said, for to us to live is an RV that we'll go see the world with. And you know, you, know, hey, you take Jesus out, you gotta take gain out, and all you have is for to me to live is to die. I know I've told you this story before, but I'll tell you one more time. One of the most, um, one of my heroes that I can't wait to get to heaven to meet is a guy named William Borden. Randy Alcorn is a Christian writer. Some of you may have read his stuff. He has a phenomenal book on heaven. Randy Alcorn tells about being in Egypt and his guides taking him down this trash-lined alley, and they trash-lined alley, and they get to this little cemetery, and there he found. The, the gravestone for William Borden, and he brushed away the dust, and down at the bottom of the gravestone marker, it said, there is no way to explain a life like this outside of Christ. Well, let me tell you a story as quickly as I possibly can. William Borden was the heir to the Borden milk fortune. I mean, here's a kid that was born a millionaire. He was gonna have a charmed life, but when William was a young person, when he was a teenager, he gave his life to Jesus Christ, and he really gave, I mean, he really gave his life to Jesus Christ. And from the moment that he had graduated from high school, he told anybody who would listen to him that he was not going to go into the family business or any other business, but he believed that God had called him to be a missionary to Northeast Africa to the Muslim people. And a friend of his said to him, you are crazy. You're already a millionaire. Why would you throw your life away to do that? And he was moved by what his friend said, but he went home and he got his Bible. And in the back of the Bible, in the cover, he just wrote two words, no reserve. Hey, if you like to watch auto auction, you know what it means when the reserve is off? That's what basically Borden was saying to, to God. The reserve is off. Whatever you want, you can have. Well, he went on to Yale. I actually have a biography called Borden at Yale. It's a phenomenal book. Can you imagine that? A biography of a, of a college student. The four years he was in college, he transformed the culture at Yale. I mean, when he got there, he noticed a lot of the professors and the kids weren't interested in God. And so he began to like talk to a few close friends who were believers. And they began to meet in his dorm room every morning early. And they would go through scriptures and they began to pray about students. In fact, they would talk about, well, who would talk to this kid and who would talk to that kid? And when they came to a kid, they felt like nobody could reach. William Borden said, hey, I'll take him. 
And like the biography board at Yale says, I mean, they transformed the Yale culture. And I mean, God just did a great work. He took part of his money and started a huge rescue mission there in New Haven. Well, he got to the end. I mean, he was president, he was president of Phi Beta Kappa, a brilliant kid with a brilliant mind. And his dad had thought that, well, you know, sooner or later he'll outgrow this idea of being a missionary to Egypt and join the family business. But when he graduated from Yale, he said, I want to go to Princeton Seminary. And his dad said, hey, if you insist on this life, you're never going to be able to work in the family business. And William Borden took his Bible out one more time, and underneath where he had read, or he had written, no reserve, he penned the words, no retreat. He went on to Princeton, was a star student at Princeton Seminary, graduated, went to Egypt, began to work on language. And unfortunately, just a few weeks after he got there, he contracted a serious illness, and he died. That was big news here in the United States. It was on the cover of major magazines that the heir to the board and fortune had gone to Egypt to be a missionary, and he died. And there were a lot of people who were asking, where is God in a story like that? And there were people that thought, yes, indeed. Indeed, he did waste his life. But they sent his, they sent his effects back to the house, and his mother was going through his effects one day, and she found his Bible. And there were the words he had written when he was in high school, and a friend said, you're going to waste your life, no reserve. And then there were the words he wrote at the end of college when his dad said, you'll never be in the family business, and he wrote the words, no retreat. But then there were there was a new entry that he had made when he knew he was dying. And in feeble hand, he had scribbled out two more words. No regrets. No retreat. No reserve. No regrets. If you and I live our lives for self, we're going to go to a dark place, hurt people, and when we die... It will, our life will not have made much difference. But if, on the other hand, we can begin to see our lives as extensions of Jesus Christ, we will truly live. All our little purposes will support an important big purpose. Our life will be worth living. And when it comes time to die, we can say, I'm going to where my life really is. It all begins with a relationship with Jesus. I talk about it every week, and that's free because you know already that he died to make right people that are not right. He died to declare righteous people who are ungodly, and that can happen to you in a, in a millisecond if you're willing to open your heart to God. Would you just all bow your heads with me for a moment? I want to pray a prayer. These are not magic words, but these are words that call out to God. And if you want to invite Jesus Christ to be in your life, to change you, to birth you into God's family, you can ask, and he will give it to you as a gift. I'll give you some words to help you. These aren't magic words, but you can decide whether you want to own them and say them to God. You can pray silently if you wish. Ready? Here we go. Dear God, I am a sinner, but I believe you love me anyway. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. And since he's alive... I want him as my savior and my king. Please make me right. Please give me the gift of everlasting life. Thank you for hearing my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.
One more thing, real quickly. If you just pray with me, here's what I'd like to ask you, plead with you to do. You can just take your talk to us card. There's one on the back seat, the back of the seat in front of you, or you may have gotten one when you came in. Take your talk to us card to any info center and just say, I prayed with Mark. That's, you only have to say those four words. They have a gift bag for you, a Bible just like I preach from. They also have a book I wrote, a DVD, and some great stuff to help you. So all you have to do is just say, I prayed with Mark, and they won't engage you in conversation unless you ask to. They just want to give you this gift. Please come to any guest services center and get it. Next week, we start a new series called Push. Pray until something happens. We'll see you then.